idea, right? It's it's an observation. It's putting it into the ether and having someone who's had experience with it apply their own knowledge and say, okay, viewing that reality, what lens? How can I? What lens can I apply? so that I can actually come up with a, a realistic or plausible explanation for what we're undoubtedly seeing, and I think that's perfect. Or to increase our knowledge and, and uh, keep these animals better is to have a better understanding of their natural history and to try to incorporate some of those things into the way we keep them in, in captivity. This is the student Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode one of Student of the Serpent, and uh, we're going to be talking about the Woma Python. So, um, yeah, to me, uh, this was uh, this was an easy pick for the first episode. Um, you know, I I really really love Woma pythons. I think um, you know the first time I saw one, um, I was just you know so different than other pythons that are out there. Um, and there's not a ton of uh, natural history that's out there uh, about them. I love Womas as well. They've uh, always had something, there's always been something compelling about them, the beautiful banded pattern. To me, I guess, historically, the bummer has been that the ones that we have in the United States, I believe, so there's two conflicting stories, one being that uh, Peter Krauss had gone to great lengths to find a matching pair of locality Womas to produce, which then became the, the genesis of the original population in the United States. The alternative narrative is that that wasn't the case. He couldn't pair up the locality, so it was a mixed locality pairing that didn't produce Lomas that kind of would compare to what you would see in Australia in terms of these pure locality, very having defining features of one population or another instead of sort of these with the muddy necks and this sort of stuff. They have very compelling but that was admittedly always something of a bummer. And I would see these Tanami Womas and things in Australia in the early aughts and mind-blown, mind-blown stuff. And additionally, they're right there. Who were the ones that stuck out? The Tanamis, Uluru, uh, those are the ones that, that I think I saw being posted by Australians in 2000, 2002, something like that. Yeah, there's something about that contrast between the bands, and I, you know, I, I'm typically drawn to striped reptiles, but I don't know. There's just something about uh, about them that uh, really sort of uh, draws me to. Them, you know? To begin our journey, let's travel down to Australia and talk to our good friend Scott Piper. fairly stable. Uh, in 1882, uh, Aspidites ramsii, the, the Woma python, also known as the sand python or Ramsey's python, was described by William Maclay, uh, type locality as a place called Fort Burke, which is in the far northwestern corner of New South Wales. Um, the Wymers that would look fairly similar to the animals that we think were at Fort Burke because the holotype was lost for a very long time. Uh, is probably similar to that of the South Australian moments, such as the animals that originate from Moomba. Um, 
in 1913, Aspidites colaris was described by uh, Longman. Uh, they are described from the type locality of Avondale Station, which is near Cunnamulla. Uh, these animals are very similar to what people sort of coin as being the southeastern Queensland lomas, which are the ones that are found in the Brigalow. Um, they are characterised by big black markings over the eyes, i.e. the, the name Colaris, meaning collared. Um, after that, the taxonomy of, of the, the Australian Aspidites basically didn't change until about 2009 when um, a Roman hoser described three subspecies. Uh, those subspecies haven't gained wide acceptance largely due to uh, the Kaiser et al. Uh, paper that came out. Uh, so uh, the subspecies names are Aspidites Richard Jones eye, Aspidites panoptes and Aspidites Neil Davii. Uh, Neil Davii and Richard Jonesy have exactly the same holotype number so there's something going wrong there. Um, they are both from Port, near Port Hedland. Uh, Panoptes is described from a place called Burracopin, which is about 250 kilometres east of Perth, or about 200 kilometres west of Kalgoorlie, and pertains to the southwestern WA animals, which are uh, extremely threatened. Um, they, there hasn't been any, to my knowledge, any phylogenies done at a species level within the Womers. There's some rough uh, phenotypic sort of separations and separation population, but that could be just as due to the ecology of those, those snakes and that there's a, a pressure for those phenotypes to uh, adapt and have some different, different colours to suit the ecosystems they happen to be living in. A couple of experiences that I've personally had with wild lomas. Um, the only wild specimen, live specimen that I've seen, was an animal of the south uh, Brigalow type, I suppose, is, the, is from a place called uh, Orgothella. It was found crossing the road at night um, in fairly dense clay-based soils. Um, we, they, in that particular location, they're actually sympatric with Aspidoides melanocephalus, the black-headed python as well. Um, the only other one that I've come across in the wild was a roadkill animal um, that would come off the road from Uluru. Uh, it was a juvenile and it was found in February, so it sort of suggests that um, in the wild at least around Uluru, those animals are hatching in February uh, or late January, in, certainly in some locations. speaking, the Woma occurs across the middle, uh, north-south, horizontally middle of Australia, 
in Queensland in the Brigalow Belt up to 80 Mile Beach to Port Hedland in Western Australia. And then in the kind of down to the median points of both the Northern Territory and South Australia, although that South Australian population is relatively rare. And there's a likely disjunct population in Southwest Australia across a crescent from roughly Southern Cross up to Shark Bay. At this point, it seems like there's basically four different general areas that you would go to find a woma python or at least to have a shot at finding a woma python. The first is that Brigalow Belt Queensland population, kind of in the Roma to Dalby general area. It seems like they're relatively, well, uh, relatively to very uncommon in that area, but people can, can occasionally find them there west of Brisbane. The next population is around Alice Springs, Uluru, Katajuda. There are some there, but that's a very difficult place to make a living for all pythons, all all reptiles. And uh, they are found there, but it's it's quite uncommon. Now, Justin looked for them there. Additionally, kind of maybe the most common area and a point of interest would be between Port Headland and 80 Mile Beach is a place where you can find both Womas and Blackheads in the same spot. In the Northern Territory, there there's a spot as well. It's uh, the populations of Blackheaded Pythons and Womas get close to one another. The most sure spot for having a chance of finding both is that stretch from Port Headland to 80 Mile Beach. The Southwestern disjunct population has really been decimated by land use Southern Cross to Geraldton region. There's a lot of historical records from that area, but they're exceedingly uncommon, if not extirpated from that area at this point in time. The one advantage that population would have, and actually this maybe speaks to Womas in general, is that generally speaking, the areas that they can inhabit are disfavored by Cantos, so that doesn't seem to be as big of a threat as it would be for a blackhead or carpet pythons. The final population where people are finding snakes, and it is presumably an outgrowth of that disjunct southwestern population, is in Shark Bay. Over the central central part of their range, where they probably have their biggest stronghold at this point, it's basically inaccessible. There's not a ton of road access, and you're getting into indigenous landhold situations and those sorts of things. Speaking of which, we can go to the Malcolm Douglas clip from the late 80s, early 90s, where he goes out with some indigenous folks and they find a couple womas and they proceed to uh, kill and eat these beautiful, you know, beautiful womas that particularly at the time would have been tens of thousands of dollars were they to, were they to be publicly available in the United States or Europe. You know, maybe like we could hit on the, like, because womas and blackheads are look similar body type their heads are basically different any thoughts on why you know i know typically you know blackheads are are coined that they're sticking their head out of burrows to sort of bask in the sun but i think that's kind of like been not you know disproven um if you will but um what would be the difference why would one have an orange head and one have a black head do you have any thoughts yeah i mean I don't know. I suppose I, so different thoughts, right, would be if they're eating, how are reptiles seeing 
that coloration. And particularly, I guess we're envisioning it, I would view it less sort of sticking their head out of the burrow than sticking their head into a burrow, right? And that it, maybe they wouldn't be a, a highly noticeable item, particularly to a goanna, if they're putting their head in and it's this dark coloration that might benefit a black-headed python, that they can kind of get their head into that burrow with a, a slightly more delayed reaction. Um, that seems semi-plausible. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a, a grand insight into that and then why Womas would be different, save for saying, presumably it's a response to prey perception to them or something that's a potential predator to them and how they're blending into the landscape on which they sit. Certainly a black head in that harsh desert environment would presumably be pretty noticeable. Whereas maybe in the savanna landscape, there's some benefit to kind of having a multi, a multiple appearance, right? If you're looking at a black head and it's in savanna grass, having a black head and then that sort of indistinct body could look like the entirety of the animal is the black head with the banding pattern then kind of camouflaging into the grass. So it looks like, oh, there's a two and a half or three inch long thing on a big adult blackhead. But in reality, it's a seven footer, that sort of thing. Right. Um, that being said, in the West Australia, right, where you get the strong black on white impression on the blackheads, presumably the same, it's not the same influence. And we kind of see that, right, where you have Eastern blackheads have this more muted, generally speaking, body appearance where you have a highly contrasted look in the Westerns that evokes a California king snake that lives in a not entirely dissimilar environment. Whereas a Woma, right, if it's in a, an area that doesn't have nearly so much of that grass, there's the spin effect situation I know Justin made mention of, and that's, that's a common component of, of their environment across, somewhat across their range perhaps the entire body entirety of the body sort of camouflages into that look if they're curled around it or intertwined amongst it and they can attempt to predate things from that sort of spin effects either underneath or being amongst it and coming at that seems to me to be a camouflage versus prey where in that context even a three inch long black head so to speak would be perhaps a threatening item to a potential prey item. So the two, um, so one thing just, and I can kind of pitch it to you to get, get your thoughts, but the, as a general topic, I, when I was looking at the range stuff for Womas, mm -hmm. it immediately jumped out to me how essentially they sit south of save for the Port Headland to 80-mile beach critters, they sit mm -hmm. south of where you'd find blackheads in the same spot, which makes it really interesting that somehow Womas are easier to hatch than blackheads. It's sort of, it, it's weird, right? Because the blackheads are coming from those more, certainly more human savanna-type habitats, and yet somehow mm -hmm. the eggs are fussy. It just seems counterintuitive that uh, when I was looking at the map, I was like, wait, we're getting, you know, you've got blackheads living in either anywhere from kind of savanna scrub, you know, it can be fairly dry, but to, mm -hmm. you know, almost certainly uh, seasonally wet spots. 
but yet those eggs will be fussier than Wilma's that come from a drier place, at least relative to moisture. It was just super interesting. As I was looking at the spots, I was just like, wait, this makes no sense to me. Intuitively, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I've thought about that. I, I wonder, though, if, if uh, the, um, you know, where the Wilma's come from more hostile environments, I guess, if you will, or, or uh, more fluctuating environments, maybe that's part of it where they, you know, I, I don't know, like there's, there's areas in the Northern territory where, you know, the water pythons will just leave their eggs because the environment uh, will incubate them, you know, just as well as the female can or something. So they'll go down a monitor burrow, lay their eggs, maybe sit with them for a couple of days and then take off to go start feeding again and things like that. I wonder, um, yeah. And, and I think the size of them too, I mean, a blackhead eggs is, is substantially larger than a Woma egg. Um, and to keep, uh, those large eggs happy, it seems like they have a little bit more of a, of a you know, requirement for something that I obviously didn't provide them in, in my incubation this year. Cause I failed at my blackhead eggs, although I did hatch out two clutches of Womas. So I've had a little better success with the Woma eggs that I've gotten, um, could also be due to my blackhead female just laying her eggs and kind of scattering them around. She's a terrible mother, but that might also speak to that, you know, more stable tropical environment that they come from. And I'm not getting something in her needs there, but <laughs> was what I said, but, uh, I think that's, I think that's probably valid, but it's, it's just an interesting idea, right? That it's, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, uh -huh. the, at least relative to moisture, less so temperature, right? Because to the point you're making, it probably yeah. is more thermostable, you know, where blackheads are than where Wilma's are. But um, mm -hmm. just in terms of moisture, it seemed kind of crazy that it's like inherently it's a place with more moisture than, uh, but maybe that's given them the ability to be more uh, specific or, you know, less tolerant than, as you say, I think that's probably the answer is just tolerability. <laughs> How tough do they have to yeah. be? Yeah, I, I've, I've struggled with that too. You know, some some things just seem a little more tricky than others. But I, bigger animals, you know, maybe just need a bigger, bigger space or bigger room. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that what I said was, you know, anything better than what you said. But you know, it's. Uh, I think it's just the you know different ideas maybe. Uh, all of us are right. Who knows? <laughs> right. Well, I, that that's the, you know, that's sort of the teaser for the show, I think, right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the sense yeah. that it's like we're just trying to toss out ideas and equally, you know, you can see the value or the intuition of what I'm saying and certainly vice yeah. versa, where it's like, yeah, I say this because it triggers one thing for me. And you say, well, what about this? And it does the same thing for me, you know, vice versa. Yeah. I, I think that's the best thing about talking to other reptile keepers is bouncing ideas off each other. I, I think those are the most fulfilling phone conversations is when you can, um, you know, chat about different hypotheses or ideas with somebody and, you know, the, all, all the egos or, or preconceptions are gone and you're just kind of trying to figure out, you know, what, what's going on with your animals. You know, you're not trying to, sound cool or sound authoritative or something. You're just chatting with, with your friend and, and bouncing ideas off of each other. And I think those, those are when I have my 
best insights into keeping reptiles is when I get, you know, those triggers or those uh, insights from some somebody else who's worked with the same species and maybe has a little different perspective on them or a different experience with them that can give you, you know, spark those ideas or spark those hypotheses and, and help you come up with something that, that's you know, testable or feasible, you know, that's, and that's kind of one of the things that's lacking to some extent is, you know, we, we don't do a lot of testing. We like a, we like a care sheet or, and I I can understand that for somebody who's, you know, doing this for, uh, for their livelihood, uh, for, you know, hobbyist keeper like me, I, you know, I, I have a job, I don't need the the money from reptiles. So I, I can kind of experiment a little bit and not uh, worry about missing a clutch, uh, in, in a given year. Um, so I don't know what I'd do if all my animals went in one year, I'd probably be overrun and uh, have to give them away or something. So it's probably good that I'm not a hundred percent successful, but whereas I think Wilma's are a little more generalistic like they'll take i mean i I don't think it would matter if the bearded dragon was sleeping or awake if they could catch it they'd probably consume it (laughs) and they'll take advantage of introduced species like mice or rabbits so i think in some ways they can kind of adapt but i i think they're so adapted to the the habitat that i i don't think they respond well to uh disturbance of the habitat you know so i think they they need kind of those protected lands and and uh protecting the habitat is is the most important thing when trying to conserve reptiles a lot of people think oh if we put this animal on the endangered species list or if we you know do that then it's going to be protected but you know that that doesn't work with reptiles they need the the habitat intact and large enough to support you know what they need to do on it and or else they just kind of disappear from that area um some, I mean, carpet pythons obviously kind of go the opposite direction and, and do very well in, in disturbed habitats and make good use of all the trees that people plant in their yard and things like that. But I don't think that works so well for Wilma's. Their habitat is arid, sandy region, including desert, sand hill, and dunes. They're also found in a variety of other subtropical and temperate arid and semi-arid habitats. Specimens have been found in rocky areas, grasslands, shrublands, and woodlands. Generally, however, walmas are strongly associated with red sand and spinifex. During most of the year, they are nocturnal. They seem to like to shelter in animal burrows, rock crevices, hollow logs, and dense vegetation, particularly spinifex. Many sources describe sandy plains and sand dunes as their primary habitat. But there are several confirmed records collected through a study that were from non-sandy areas. These include two recent records from the Beverly Mine and the Woolatana Station on the western side of Lake Fromm. They use these shelters to escape the heat of the day. And we're going to discuss some of the ways that they have evolved to live in such harsh climates and have adapted to be able to be successful in these areas. One interesting tidbit that affects both pythons in the genus Aspidites, both the Wolmas and the blackheads, is their lack of external pits. For more on that, let's talk to Justin Julander and see his thoughts on that. 
So the heat pit question is you know, pretty fascinating. I mean, they, they do have a kind of those rostral uh, heat pits. So hold the phone. What exactly is a heat pit? So vipers, pythons, and boas have holes in their face called pit organs, which contain a membrane that can detect infrared radiation from warm bodies up to a meter away. At night, the pit organ allows snakes to, quote-unquote, see an image of their predator or prey, similar to like an infrared camera. Uh, the images of the predator <laughs> come to mind. Um, it, but this gives them this unique extra scent. Okay, enough rambling. Let's get back to it. Um, but definitely reduced compared to other... Uh, species, you know, of a, a python in Australia, especially, you know, like the the carpet pythons, they have very noticeable heat pits and large heat pits. And um, so I, I would imagine that they're the original ancestor to all these pythons likely had heat pits. Um, the other part of the story is that their blackheads and lomas are the most recently derived um, meaning they've, they've appeared on the scene most recently in terms of evol in evolutionary terms. And so um, you would expect that trait to have evolved uh, due to their lifestyle. I would imagine as, as Australia got drier and hotter, it pushed more things into, um, in, into trying to, to uh, better compete in these niches. They had various adaptations, you know, of course, to a more arid uh, habitat uh, lifestyle and a more arid habitat. And so I imagine as they moved, you know, into these drier areas, um, you know, those heat pits would likely get in the way as they're uh, kind of capitalizing on their more um, burrowing behaviors or, or utilizing those habitats. And I imagine, you know, especially with uh, some of the desert regions, that's to go underground is, is the way you survive in those areas. And so, you know, heat pits and, and underground uh, behavior doesn't mesh well. Um, there was a really cool paper that studied Womas and followed them, um, you know, radio tracked them. And a lot of the year they were, they spent underground in these rabbit burrows, both in the hotter times of the years as well as in the cool times, I believe. And, uh, you know, they'd come out to hunt or find a mate or whatever, and they'd go down in these burrows to lay their eggs and to, you know, weather the storm, you know, whether it be hot or cold. And so, you know, that underground behavior definitely would not uh, gel well with uh, heat pits. So I imagine over time that was the impetus for those to go away or you know, for the animals that uh, were born without those to survive and propagate and have a have more adaptive uh, uh, nature to the environment. Um, but it, you know, it's definitely difficult to say how, how that occurred or, or in what, what time period that occurred. But I would imagine that was the way it went, where they, their ancestors had heat pits and they evolved to lack those heat pits to adapt to the, the arid environment. But that's not the whole story. Is it accurate that they have a sensory organ that's located in the rostral scales? Is that been shown 
the rostral scale has been shown to have some heat receptors. Um, I also imagine that the diet played a role in that switch because they moved to uh, blackheads feed primarily on on reptiles and you know reptiles also factor quite heavily into the diet of woma pythons um so you know you don't need the heat pits as, as much when you're hunting uh, ectothermic prey versus hunting million you know endotherms so that's probably another reason why you know they they uh, evolved to not have heat pits um in, you know, thinking about it, that's what I would conclude. Uh, diet probably played a role in that as well. There isn't the competing pull, right? So there's the push of living a subterranean lifestyle, and then there, but there's not the competing pull of still eating a predominant mammalian diet or endothermic diet, as you say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, evolution has those pushes and pulls and, you know, uh, a lot of factors go into different things. Um, obviously, it's probably not the easiest thing to change um, structure and function in uh, in animals, but I mean, we see it may occur quite rapidly. There's the the example, you know, Darwin's finches. I'm sure the founder population probably had a single beak type, but then over the you know however long those islands have been around the the finches have evolved different beak types to capitalize on different food sources. So, you know, you can have a fairly rapid divergence in, in a phenotype or in a structure like a beak. So it wouldn't be too far-fetched to have, um, you know, pythons lose their heat pits in a similar manner. Excavation and active foraging, novel observations of radio tracked woma pythons. Um, what I found interesting about this paper was that not only did they record arboreal behavior, um, they recorded excavation behavior, and uh, there was some interesting stuff uh, as far as their feeding behaviors. Um, Typically, you wouldn't think of woma pythons as an arboreal snake, and um, that just really kind of surprised me. And um, apparently, what they're what they're doing is they're coming up on dragons that are sort of sleeping in these trees and um, preying upon them, um, which I found quite fascinating. As far as the arboreal behavior, six of the 12 that were radio tracked um, demonstrated arboreal behavior. Both sexes were demonstrated to have this behavior equally. Uh, pythons were observed up to 10 meters high in these trees with two to four meters uh, being more common. Um, all arboreal observations commenced at night and were completed by dawn. Eight of the ten arboreal observations were confirmed prey stalkings, um, and the remaining two occurred as the womas were descending from the trees. 
all arboreal observations occurred during warm weather in the Australia summer season. During arboreal activity, Woma body temperature was warmer than ambient air temperature during 9 out of 10 observations. Mean snake temperature on arrival at an arboreal observation was 25.8 degrees Celsius and ranged from 20.5 degrees Celsius to 30.5 degrees Celsius. Whilst mean ambient temperature on arrival was lower than 24.1 degrees Celsius, ranging from 19 degrees to 27 degrees Celsius. What's your thoughts, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I guess the only point would be, right, that when we talk about ambient air temperature, that's a shade temperature. And presumably the trees that these are climbing in this habitat are not particularly lush. So you're probably talking about sun exposure. So they're uh, exerting themselves, which I wouldn't present in an um, ectotherm is actually generating heat, but they are kind of exposed to, they're probably being exposed to direct sunlight. So they're, that action is putting them into, into sunlight, uh, sun movement, assuming these aren't nighttime readings, in which case I guess it would be residual heat to a willingness to get quite warm, which again, speaking of ectotherms, right, is speaking of energy consumption. So I guess that's the thing that I would draw is that they have to be pretty opti the, the snakes have to be pretty optimistic of a feed. Otherwise it's potentially a risky behavior, right? They're putting in, they're expending a lot of effort in turn caloric caloric effort, both in the action itself, but also in the temperatures that they're exposing themselves to. So if there's not, if they're not successful to offset that expenditure over the long term, that would be detrimental. One of the coolest videos and I've seen of Woma Python behaviors was in a video from um, a video called Killer Instinct, and it was Australian Pythons by Rob Brettle. Um, Rob, maybe you could touch on uh, exactly what's going on with, with this. Being associated with often hot, sandy areas or uh, at least uh, hot surface temperatures, it seems like Womas have the ability to ridge their ventral scales, raising themselves up, minimizing their ventral contact with the surface that they sit upon. We see this as kind of a, a V-shaped appearance, which can, in sand can produce an interesting pattern or evidence that they've trans transited through an area. Presumably the same is applicable in more rocky habitat, like what you've just discussed, although it might not be as sturdy. So it, it seems most likely to be something associated with their sand, sand when they're in sandy habitat. The next um, observation was the excavation behavior. Um, there was uh, my first insight into uh, this behavior was um, actually a video on Facebook where I, uh, somebody had a more naturalistic type setup for the Woma Python that they were keeping. And the Woma was sort of digging out the burrow, if you will. And um, this seems to be um, something that they, that they sort of do in the wild. Um, they were observed as excavating soil uh, two times during the study. The first digging observation occurred early in the afternoon, which was 2 p.m. on a hot summer day, with full cloud cover and storms developing. <laughs>
adult male python was located with the anterior portion of his body approximately 30 centimeters inside a wide barrel entry. A pile of loose soil was present outside of the barrel. 10 minutes after arrival, the python began to scoop more soil out of the barrel with its head and continued to do this for approximately 12 scoops before reversing out of the barrel and investigating the loose soil. The python then braced against the base of a shrub located 30 centimeters from the barrel entry, using it to loosen soil deep in the barrel. So basically, I guess what they're doing is they're sort of wedging themselves um, against this shrub so that they can sort of use it as leverage um, to make it easier uh, to dig out these barrows. Um, That's super interesting. After leveraging against the shrub for a further five minutes, the python slowly moved down into the barrow entry and disappeared. The Woma had moved 400 meters from its last known barrow at 55 hours after the digging observation, had moved a further 260 meters to shelter in a well-established ground barrow system. The second digging observation was of a small adult female at sunset, late in summer, it was a warm day with some clouds present. Whilst locating the python with an adult bulldeye, was observed retreating from the top of a hollow log within one meter of subsequently determined location of the python. On arrival, the head of the python was deep inside the slender barrow, and the tail was jerking erratically from side to side. A behavior identical to that observed previously during prey attack. Python proceeded to scoop the dirt out of the barrel using her head in the same manner as described. The scooping movement exposed a small amount of loose soil at the barrel entry, indicating the Woma had just commenced digging. The python continued to scoop out the dirt for another two minutes before abandoning the excavation to enter a very small barrel one meter away and underneath the log from which the Goldieye uh, had retreated. Eight minutes later, the python slowly exited the same barrow, stopped intermittently, and moved back past the excavated barrow before ex exiting the area. The python had moved 125 meters from her previous location, and 55 hours later, she had moved 250 meters further to a hollow log shelter. Very cool. Yeah, that just fascinates me that they that they do that. But I guess that, uh, I mean, they would have to shelter in those burrows to escape that heat during the day. Yeah, I imagine you know. Um, so I guess you got to figure out a way to. <laughs> if you can't fit in the burrow, you got to figure out a way to fit in there. You know, um, and it's just fascinating to an animal that has no, you know, limbs is able to uh, to achieve that. Feeding behaviors in the wild um, occurred both at night and day, but occurred more often at night. Um, the nine ingested prey items include uh, various monitors. Eight prey stalking behaviors were observed, though not were, all were successful. Seven of the eight observed prey stalking behaviors occurred in trees at night, and prey included five adult eastern bearded dragons, 
all feeding observations occurred during the Australian warm season between October and March. The 13 feeding records were dominated by reptilian prey. So 90%, 92% of what they were feeding upon was reptiles, which I find interesting because I thought the blackheads were more of a reptile specialist than walnut pythons. Yeah, I mean, it could be a sample size question or it could just be one of those things where we have our uh, sort of common knowledge or common misconception uh, here in the United States of what they do. And we say, oh, well, comparative to blackheads, Wilma's eat a much higher percentage of mammalian prey. And maybe that either was true based on old study information, represented the populations that were studied previously, or is just entirely sort of a captive fiction that we have maintained here in the United States. And then we compare it to actual data and it's not the case. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So what was your, what was your thought? So the interesting bit to me, just as you were talking through the observations, both in terms of successful and attempts is if you're talking about dragons and goannas, Generally speaking, you're talking about diurnal to crepuscular critters, and uh, versus when you are so, if you're talking about a reptilian diet, if they're feeding at night, and we're talking about dragons and goannas as the prospective prey items, then those should be sleeping. Those are things that are should be uh, resting down for the evening. They're in their uh, dormant phase of the day, as opposed to if they were going after other snakes. For the most part, those would be active at night, and maybe the, the relevant hunting time will speak to that. Certainly, they have some handling, for lack of a better term, dexterity, based on our captive experience with Wilma's. But generally speaking, they're probably trying to approach things when they're in their relatively dormant position. So on snakes, that's probably going to be during the day when they're hunkered down. And on dragons and goannas, that's probably going to be at night. Yeah, that, uh, that's very interesting. Um, you know, just looking at this uh, feeding behavior in this paper, um, you know, one of the things that they talk about is, um, you know, Woma pythons being very secretive, spending 74% of their time underground um, and 95% of the time in inaccessible shelters such as hollow logs, mounds of dirt, large piles of wood debris, I wonder, is there any kind of information out there? Are, are, are they falling into the Owen Pelly, um, you know, uh, situation where, you know, it's not that they're really not that commonly found. It's just that they're not, they're not where we would observe them. I think there's something to that. Certainly, though, in terms of, southeastern Queensland and southwestern Western Australia, humans have moved there, and those are places that have been heavily modified, generally speaking. And so we do have access to that spot, and that does seem to have caused, at a minimum, local reductions, if not locality extirpations. But I do think across kind of the center of their range, to the point you're making, accessibility whether in terms of road infrastructure, access to different land, kind of 
indigenous versus private versus public land access situations. And finally, even when you're in, you have some of those habitats that are just not easy to get to, right? There is, so there is a road, but it's a great it requires a great investment of time. And this is the point you raised in the Owen Pelly by comparing it to Owen Pelly's, is that it either requires a great deal of time, effort, expense, or just is the has the potential to sort of strand you. I know when we were talking before our first trip with Scott about a potential to kind of hit southwestern Queensland, and he said, "Well, yeah, it could be could be all well and good, or you could get a sandstorm that comes through and you could be stuck there for two weeks." So that really speaks to kind of a potential a potential risk investment, right? Where you could get stranded in an area, and obviously for us that would cause heaps of problems in terms of getting back, missing a flight, all these different things. So you're, you're less likely to go to that area in the first place if you're cognizant of that risk. Yeah, you don't you don't want to get stuck in the uh, in the outback. That's for sure. You know, I mean, in Bedouri or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, it it totally changes your perception after being um, in that uh, hot Australian sun, um, not wanting to be stuck there. That's for sure. An interesting feature of Woma is, at least based on kind of historical information compared to captive stuff both in the United States and Australia, is the variability in clutch size that we see. So if you would ask me based on sort of a, at a general guess, what would I say? I would probably say, oh, six to 10 to 12 eggs, something like that on average, maybe getting creeping slightly higher on Wilma's descended principally from larger populations. But Joe Brettel in 1982 had a female lay 28 eggs, which to me is just bonkers. I would never, I would never have thought that plausible. So yeah, that, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. You know, that's double kind of what I double a high end, a high end estimate that I would have. And that perhaps that reflects my own prejudice, but it's also in line with sort of published documentation, whether it's the 94 Barker book, um, and other things that, that seems, amazingly high yeah and there's there's not a lot of um you know we were talking about breeding but there's not a lot of um, available knowledge uh about reproduction of this species in the wild probably more so in captivity i would i would think um uh, yeah 100 percent. other other than that i mean in terms of the sort of process of of breeding and the time frames, they seem pretty normative, right? Talking about laying three weeks, three to four, uh, 23 to 30 days or so from the post-ovulation shed to egg deposition. And then hatching in approximately 60 days at sort of normative python temperatures, presumably kept a little bit drier, referencing kind of their preference for drier habitats. It is interesting. I know we talked to Justin about this a little bit. Looking at the range of woma pythons in the wild, it struck me that blackheads sit essentially to the north across the range in Australia of these locations that you would find womas, which is a inherently wetter environment. But in captivity, we find, at least in the United States and Europe, 
that black-headed python eggs are more susceptible to wet conditions, while woma eggs are, while still doing best in drier conditions, are more, generally speaking, more tolerant of humidity, humidity during incubation than our black-headed python eggs. It was just fascinating to see. We talked to Justin about this a little bit. He has some excellent theories on that point. Baby womas are quite large, averaging two-thirds of a meter upon hatching and approximately 40 grams in weight. They show solid contrasting colors when they're born, and this becomes particularly bright and noticeable at about a year of age. They typically look their best, their highest contrast, their quote their best around a year of age. How the majority of preserved specimens in museum collections miss the end of their tails, which is occurs at a greater rate of frequency than most other most, if not all, other pythons examined in the same way, right? I, I'd been looking for womas in the wild before. We, my my dad and I went on a trip to Central Australia, and uh, you know that was one of the targets, right? We we took a kind of a detour to an area where they were supposed to be pretty commonly uh, found, and uh, you know we were driving through the sand and like. I don't know if you've driven through sand, but it can be a little uh, sketchy sometimes when your car starts to sink down. You don't want to get stuck in sand in the middle of nowhere. And this was like a brand new road that they built, I think probably for some mining venture or something. So it's out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, we're getting kind of bogged down at some points when we're driving. My dad's like, keep going. Don't stop. Don't slow down. You know, keep going. Don't get stuck here. So, um, but, you know, beautiful red sand from the central Australian deserts. And I was just, you know, sure that any second we were going to pull, you know, see one in the headlights and, you know, that anticipation of just you're in the right place at the right time. You know, you, you might see one and you're just hoping you see it. And, and I didn't see it. <laughs> we drove all night, and I think all we saw was one little, little gecko. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of a, um, the next morning we saw, like, a central netted dragon. That was pretty cool, but no uh, Woma python for, for that uh, venture or that trip at, at all to the central Australian desert. So, um, you know, I, so I, you know, I talked to several people, and they're like, oh, yeah, Womas are hard to find. You know, even Australians don't see them very often. And so I was thinking, okay, you know, that's, that's how it goes. You know, you, you win some, you lose some. Some things are hard to find. And, you know, when I when I go out for one night uh, to their area, maybe, you know, I can't expect to find one. So I'm like, oh, you know, that, that's all right. I'll, I'll give it another shot. So when I was, again, in the range, and this time in Western Australia, um, you know, I had I, heard a lot of people talk about um, black-headed pythons along 80 mile beach and you know that was the place you drive kind of that road uh, roads along 80 mile beach area and you're sure to see a western blackhead and so of course you know that's that was another species that was high on my priority list i knew that the two species came in very close contact or even overlapped in that area so i was thinking oh maybe i'll get really lucky and see a woman so um 
we were headed outside of the town of Port Headland, and like maybe 10 minutes, as soon as basically we cleared the city limits, there on the road was a python. I thought for sure it would be a black-headed python. I knew it was striped and looked, you know, black-headish, and I just had, had it in my mind that I was going to find a blackhead and not a woma. But it turned out to be the other way around. It was a woma right there in the road, you know, like just waiting for us to, as soon as we entered the, you know, the desert habitat, there it was just sitting, sitting right in the road. So of course, you know, I was just thrilled. My wife's like, uh, you know, do you need a bag to breathe into? <laughs> Are you okay? Are you going to be all right here? And so I uh, jumped out of the car, you know, checked it out, pulled it off the road, of course, for its own safety. And then I never touched it after that, right? So, but uh, we, I watched it, you know, videoed it, you know, just took pictures, and I was just sat there in awe. Like, this thing is, um, you know, incredible animal. And how, how just happy I was and fortunate I was to find one. Um, of course, uh, you know, the, the habitat was kind of sandy. Um, it was dominated by spinifex, uh, so, and that was, you know, once I released the animal, it went uh, kind of underneath some spinifex clumps, and I don't know if you're familiar with spinifex, but you're, it's pretty impenetrable. It's kind of like a big mat of, of cactus thorns, you know, that look like grass. They look really innocent, but they are pretty nasty. So, you know, definitely, I, I kind of almost thought, should I have taken more pictures? And in retrospect, yes, I probably should have spent like six hours sitting there with that animal because we didn't find much after that. And I, I you know, if, you, if only you knew, you know, in retrospect, I would have spent a lot more time with that animal. But I'm thinking, oh, this is a, you know, right out of town, we find this awesome animal. This night's going to be you know, crazy. Um, and it turned out, you know, we didn't find any black um in on that trip or a subsequent trip and didn't find any more womas either but uh so that's my only western australian aspidites that's been alive i found a couple uh dor blackheads but oh man that, that was that made up for whatever i can't complain you know i i, I found a woman in, in, in the wild so that's uh that's about as good as it can can get so i'm pretty pretty stoked that that, that was uh, the case but um, I still remember, like after I got back in the in the vehicle and we were driving away from it, um, this song came on the radio. Like we were out in the middle of nowhere. Like I was flipping through trying to find anything to listen to to kind of keep me awake. And all of a sudden, I, um, I I I get on this radio station and they start playing. Um, if I had a tale by them, so every time I hear that song, I think of the Woma that I found in Western Australia and it just brings a big smile to my face. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that kind of was, uh, one of the highlight, uh, experiences on all my trips over to Australia for sure. So coming up in the hobby, how did you kind of imagine Womas to be? 
or was it like a thing that you always always were looking to, you know, from Frank in the eighties, early nineties or Casey or, or whatever you were seeing it. And it's something that you were like, man, one day I'm going to have those, that sort of a feeling, an aspirational snake. Yeah. I mean, I think after, after I kind of got into the carpets, you know, I realized they were, they were really cool pythons in Australia. And, you know, I probably have seen different things on, on, in books or, um, here or there, or, you know, the, the internet was, was not really a thing yet. So it was kind of, you know, what you could see in books and, you know, there's not a, I don't remember like a ton of information out there on Woma or black-headed pythons, maybe black-headed's more, but, um, you know, once, once I got carpets pretty heavy and started looking up, uh, all the information I could and any, any books I could get my hands on things like that, I started realizing you know, all these other cool pythons in Australia. And of course, you know, the Aspidites were pretty high on the list. I think probably the blackheads are probably more, that iconic Australian snake, you know, for some reason they just have picked those over the Womas to be kind of the, uh, the, the one that they put in all the books and things like that. So I probably, uh, I, I remember seeing more black headed, uh, Python images and, you know, they were really cool, but then, you know, you find out there's one that looks very similar, but, uh, you know, different in a lot of ways has a bright orange head and, you know, some sunglasses that look pretty cool. So, um, you know, it kind of piqued my interest for sure. I think, you know, probably uh, Python Pete's website was one of the, um, you know, earliest times where I went, oh, these are really available. You know, you could actually buy one. You know, of course, they were several thousand dollars at that time. And so I definitely couldn't afford them just getting into the hobby. But, you know, it was like one of those things like someday, you know, that's going to be something I'd love to work with. Um, but yeah, the, the Python beat Womas were just phenomenal looking. They were really just orange and cream banded and, you know, just, and he, he had a, he had a good way of kind of painting a picture and making, you know, things just really stand out and, and look really, uh, amazing. So had really good photography on his website and stuff. So, yeah, that was something that definitely caught my interest. Uh, when I was, you know, looking for places to buy a jungle carpet python, you know, he had jungles and womas and blackheads and uh, a bunch of other cool stuff. So that really uh, got me uh, thinking about those. But one of those things where I didn't think I'd actually be able to get them anytime soon. <laughs> well, I, I I think out of the two Aspidites, they were probably the more achievable or they weren't as expensive as the blackheads, um, but they were uh, they were more commonly produced. I guess they were a little easier to work with. So the price on the Womas um, was at a more manageable level sooner. So I guess based on price, I could afford Womas before I could afford blackheads, and so that's kind of one of the deciding factors that I went with Womas first. <laughs> so and and also I think. The, uh, when I originally, you know, was thinking, now this is probably doesn't fit, but when I was originally thinking about blackheads, um, the, uh, I, I really wanted to hold out for the Westerns. And so they were a lot harder to find and very expensive. So, you know, I kind of had to wait a little longer for those, but, um, yeah, Wilma's, uh, the be within my affordable range sooner. And then, you know, I got an opportunity to, work with some animals from Python Pete, um, that, uh, you know, he, he sent over, uh, several 
uh, breeder animals as he was getting out of the hobby. And uh, they were just, you know, beautiful, beautiful walnuts from a diverse range. His, his kind of um, strategy to breeding a lot of these reptiles was to get animals from every collection possible and then kind of, you know, mix them together with, you know, other really nice individuals and try to come up with unique looks or, or diverse looks for his collection. So kind of a, a good way to do it and produce a lot of really nice animals.